Hey, this your boy Trevi Trey, one half of TVT Hosea 46. And guess what? We back. I told y'all I'll be back. I wasn't gonna leave y'all, but we're talking today about something interesting, something that may spark some debates with some folks. Um, <laughs> interesting debates. Uh, but when we come back, uh, we're gonna be talking about is KJV the only authentic version? What about new translations? Trust me, you don't want to skip this podcast episode. I got a dear friend and a dear sister with me. She's been with us before, but when we come back, we'll get her to talk. I'm going to talk. We both going to talk about is KJV, KJV the only version. We'll be back. Hey, what's going on? Told you I'll be back. Listen, We've had some, I want to say this. We have some pretty, pretty, pretty good episodes these past couple weeks to come out. Uh, let's see, we introduced introduce something new. It's called It's Gone Viral that's going to come back or, or continue rather. Uh, so we get some, we just look at some viral videos, uh, just give a Christian perspective from them. Pretty much get people to think object objectively about them and not, try to run with every single thing you hear uh just because somebody says hey look i got a rabbit that i pulled out of his hat and you didn't see it happen doesn't mean you need to believe it you know, where's the evidence okay so we're gonna look at we looked at some of those we've had uh dr gk bill join us for uh dialogue on the book of revelation just kind of some popular stuff that you might hear uh let's see joseph jordan joined us to talk about aliens in las vegas that was pretty cool and then that one is still i mean the downloads on that one is just crazy and probably because all this stuff is coming out but anyways uh and then we just had dr edward alcor to talk to us about uh the trinity and unitarians oneness uh whatever that may be it can be oneness pentecostals whatever you know you just don't believe in trinity or call it back but uh, if you want to get caught up, pause here and go back and start wherever you like to start at. But I got another one today. I got another fire one. Before I introduce my guests, take a listen to this clip. The King James Bible is the word of God. Thank God for the English. Amen. Who cares what the Greek says? They make pretty good sandwiches. That's about it. Amen. I can take this book and correct the Greek. Amen. Amen. All right. So I'm not going to believe it the time. She's been with us. <laughs> can you hear me fuming on the other side? Of uh, oh, man. This this had me rolling last night. I'm not going to lie. When I was searching for <laughs> I was dying. I was like, okay. Anyway, well... You, you already hear this is my guest. She's a good, dear, dear friend, dear sister in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Margot Reese, Dr. Margot Reese, she's nothing to play with. Don't sleep on her. She is a heavy hitter. And <laughs> trust me, if she cut her camera on, or we were a podcast, it was visual, and she cut her camera on and showed you my library. I, know I talk about mine sometimes, and uh, I shared this with my wife, Marco. She was like, you know, what are you getting for your birthday? And I was like, she's like, you can get more books. And I was like, I, I don't know. I, I got something actually, tell your husband, I got something, um, the Vortex, uh, it's a heat shield for Weber grill. So it kind of spreads the heat evenly. Oh, he's going to like to know about oh, that. Oh yeah. 
Yeah, we're we're cross nerdual. We can talk about books, barbecue, yes. whatever. <laughs> yes, yes, baking, cakes. Right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yes, yes. Come on, coffee. I got my yeah coffee. I was actually going to do the podcast downstairs in my kitchen, but <laughs> you know, as with little kids, you know, my kids come in here and touch my stuff. My office is an open invitation. Oh, daddy, this, daddy, this, and his mm -hmm. office, and stuff goes missing. <laughs> so my portable stand, I don't know, my boom arm, portable boom arm, is missing. So I blame my kids because they think they're singers, but they can. Ain't no praise God because they love to sing. Yes, Jesus loves me. They love that. And then they love to sing, this is the day that the Lord has made. And one time, Dr. Reese, I was in the kitchen. I picked him up from the babysitter and I was in the kitchen. I kept hearing some paper tear. And I was like, what, are you, what book are y'all tearing up? And I ran in the living room and my oldest daughter had made a pulpit. I'm not lying. And she had a microphone and she was in there preaching. Amen. I she like that. <laughs> But, you know, parents, you know, I, I never forget, I heard the, the, uh, the Reverend Dr. Lance Watson of uh, St. Paul Baptist, he said this one time, he said, we always make sure our children found us on our knees to let them know that we submit to a higher power and a higher power is God the Father. So, you know, but anyways, so Dr. Reese, um, welcome back. She's been with us before. Welcome back. Welcome back. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here again. Oh yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad to have you. I'm glad to have you. Uh, but again, let me go back. So if we were a visual podcast, I, I'm, I'm rambling. I got my coffee up here. And that's what I was saying. I was going to record <laughs> downstairs near my coffee pot because, you know, I'm off work and, you know, whatever. But anyways, it's, it's birthday gifts to myself. Praise God. So I just said, you know what? Let me let me fill my hot cold cup up because I can't find my stuff and it keeps my coffee hot for a while and then I'll just pour it in my cup. But anyways, but if we cut our cameras on, I told my wife, that I said, no, nah, I didn't order enough for my birthday. I ordered the Vortex with the heat shield. Other people have gotten, are, are getting me books and gift cards to Amazon, right? So I can I can do that for that. I can buy stuff I need for, you know, getting ready for this dissertation phase. So I need need all the, you know, material I can get. Hey, so anyway, if she cut her cameras on, I'm telling you, her book game is super heavy. And I mean, it is super heavy. It's enough to where she she got a hundred books. You know? I'm telling you, I got a hundred books. So she's not playing with y'all. She's not. So don't sleep on her. She's uh she's a dear friend, a uh, 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 sister. Uh, I call her a mentor, whether she knows it or not. Cause I just, anytime mm. she talks, I shut up and listen. And, um, <laughs> you know, she, um, Let's see. Let's see. What else can I say about it? Oh, Lydia's House International. You guys need to look that up. That is a wonderful ministry. If you want to donate, if you want to give, uh, you're looking for something to give to Lydia's House International. And I'll get her to tell us more about that. But anyways, Dr. Reese, welcome back. I'm gonna shut up. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad to be here. That was like the worst clip I could ever hear. I mean, okay. that guy did sound really smart, so I'm sure we should trust him. And you sound ignorant. Oh, the Greeks make I a mean, good sandwich. The Greeks make a whole lot more great stuff. Baklava. Yeah, I'm like, you're right. That's all they've made in the past 8,000 years. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, dude, come on, man. I, You know, I grew up with some brothers that are, um, I don't know if you heard, in Richmond, it was called Crazy Greek. It's a restaurant here in Richmond. Yeah, yeah, Denver. of course. Yeah, so I grew up with the the owner's kids. I think they the parents have since sold it, but one of the sons uh, had opened or just opened a restaurant up 
not too long ago. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, I grew up, you know, I grew up, a uh, matter of fact, uh, played football with a brother. He's now a priest in the Greek Orthodox church, but his, oh, wow. his dad was actually the pastor of the Greek Orthodox church in Richmond. So super nice folks. I mean, they cooked for us one time at two. At, well, then we had three days. Now this stuff, I mean, that's when, you know, we were practicing in 110 degree heat. Mm. They cooked for us some good Greek food, but yeah, but anyway, but yeah, so you heard the clip and, uh, you know, this is what we're talking about today is it, you know, this KJV issue. So Dr. Reese, I did not know that this was your, your, your pet subject, correct? Um, it is. Yeah. And, and you, you know, when, when we were DMing the other day, I was going to say, you know, my, my dissertation definitely was on the Hebrew Bible, but the area that I specialized in was, um, the history of the approach to translating the Bible. I focused on the Hebrew Bible or, or as Christians would call it sometimes the old Testament, Mm-hmm. But um, I spent a lot of time focusing on textual transmission, manuscript transmission, and then the approach, <clears throat> the theological approach to translating the scriptures, because that's always been a really contentious issue um, from the moment that people decided that a translation was even necessary for the Bible. And of course, that would have been um, just in, in about like the third to second century B.C., um, right. Around that time, there's some debate. It could be, it could have been somewhat earlier in terms of just orally speaking, but mm-hmm. you know, at that time, and of course, at that time, there's only an Old Testament. Um, mm-hmm. Basically, there was always some theological trepidation about translating it at all because the belief, as as we still believe today, is that these words, if you think of the Old Testament, these are the words that were given to Moses or given to the patriarchs. Um, by God. And it was written down and we trust that it was written down in, in Hebrew for the old Testament and Greek and the new Testament by the inspiration of the Holy spirit. So to translate it from those words in which it was originally committed mm-hmm. uh, to, or transmitted to the human race and our belief and our faith system to, to then translate that into another language. Every time you translate something, you're making some kind of exegetical or hermeneutical leap because you have to decide like this word that is thousands of years old in Hebrew, what does it mean in modern English? I mean, that's a huge decision. So I'm saying that in modern terms, but of course, 2000 years ago, when those decisions had to be made or, or people decided that they needed to be made, there's this tension between two things in translation. And it's this, well, traditionally, and now the, the tensions are more somewhat nuanced and complicated, but the original people, you know, who decided when the Jews originally decided we need to have a translation of the Bible, of the Hebrew mm-hmm. Bible, mm-hmm. Um, the reason they made that decision was because they had a tension. They're like, okay, we've got this ancient text that is um, written in a language that is no longer spoken. Um and so even though we believe this is a holy language and this is the language in which the text was transmitted to humans, um, we want to preserve that because it's holy. It was the words that God spoke. It's the words that were inspired by the Holy Spirit. We don't want to touch that. We, we don't want to mess with it. It's like the, the things inside the tabernacle touching it could defile it, right? It could right, change right. it. But on the other hand, the content of what God transmitted to us, if we, if we 
get so distanced historically from the meaning, the word meaning, we will no longer know what God said to us. So there's this tension between the language that God used and the meaning that God was trying to transmit. And the necessity for translation comes along when it's like, well, what, what are we going to do? We've got this entire generation of people who want to follow God and they can't read this language. And even the priests are going to have to translate it to them in order for them to know what it says. Mm. You understand? So there's oh, yeah. this sort of, you know, it's kind of like a necessary evil almost, although no one would say that translating it was evil, but there, I mean, obviously there have been many people who said that translations were evil and that's why, because they felt that, that oh, yeah. the translators themselves were sort of imbuing the text with a different meaning or giving it a theological slant. My feeling toward all trans, all translation is theological. You can't help it. You're always, every time, even if you read a, the Bible in English, you're reading it with your lens. I mean, we talk about cultural lens all the time now and because of things like, um, you know, bias and privilege and things like that. People talk about the lens through which that you understand events that happen, books that mm -hmm. you read, things like that. Mm -hmm. well, that's just how hum humans are. No one, no one, is, no human is objective. <laughs> so yeah, it's like cultural. Um, yeah. Cultural. Like uh, we come to the text with presuppositions, like, yeah. uh, you know, and, we might and, come with Western eyes or Eastern eyes or this eyes, and we read into the text our own type of cultural situation. So where we come to certain passages where we may translate it in the West or look at it in the West in one way, in a whole other part of the world, they may look at it differently. Well, and of course, even when you produce a translation where you're where you have done your historical research and you're attempting to be faithful right. to the original writer's mm -hmm. uh, meaning, the word that you choose in your language, we call the target language, um, may convey a bunch of sort of implied undermeaning that you didn't mean to put there, but it's only it's the only word that exists in your language that that would be a parallel. So then you right. don't intend for it to be understood a certain way, but people then pick it up and carry it away and understand it according to their implications. And for example, this this gentleman who was just speaking on this clip that you played, I mean, when when someone reads a, a, the Bible in English, uh -huh. they are they are not only bringing their understanding of theology and God and things that they were taught in Sunday school to it, they're also bringing the way they learned like the English lexicon to it. Exactly. And so if there's a word in English that they think means one thing, it may not, it, that may not be the intent. Um, you know, I mean, and, and with the King James version, of course, we're now distanced from that over 400 years. Um, right. English changes vastly uh, all the time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and, and so there are meanings that, I mean, for example, if you talk to, if I talk to my children, they say, why do people say, do not take the name of the Lord, your God in vain? Mm -hmm. People don't, I mean, the only reason people say this has all been in vain is because it's left in our language from the King James. The King James actually changed the English language, not the other way around. Mm. Um, and just the way that Shakespeare, you know, there are phrases that people use that come from Shakespeare. There are also like tons of phrases that people use, like, you know, oh, our car finally gave up the ghost. Well, that's actually from the King James translation about when Jesus died on the cross and he cross, gave up yeah. his spirit it says right. he gave up the ghost you know but people use that as a, as a phrase to mean like oh that thing finally kicked the bucket you know right right and, and again we don't use the word ghost anymore to mean spirit except for no. people do say holy ghost but right. that's a vestige of the king james bible it's not representative of modern english yeah
So there's almost this diglossic relationship in the church and the devout church with these old phrases. I mean, you hear people, my brothers were talking about this with me this weekend, these sort of goofy, antiquated phrases and words that people in the evangelical church use like it's normal English and it's not, you know, like I'm going mm-hmm. through a season right now. And I'm like, well, I think you just oh, got man. that, you know, you oh, know, I can spend, oh, great. you should have said it because I can spend hours with you talk about it. Oh yeah, like like we're gonna co-labor with the parents to do this. And I mean, these words that you're like, that is not an actual word that you, right. that you would ever use for anything, but in church context, well, it's like code switching. You know, we talk about that right. in the African-American community as well. Code switching, right, right. you you code switch in church, especially if you're Pentecostal, Kojic, whatever, you're gonna oh, yeah. code switch. You use those words, but they're not like standard English words. Well, exactly. the, the King James Bible, is ironically did pass into normal usage in just like regular everyday English, but it's not words that are used in relation to anything else or used, you know, idiomatically. So, I mean, I'm kind of digressing here, but I'm trying to say like, there's a lot of things that go into understanding how a translation is made and how reliable it is. And they're a lot bigger than manuscripts and things like that as part of just trying to understand language actually, and decide where your priorities are. So, as I said, in the beginning, that was the big debate is, well, we don't want to translate the Bible because we're sort of touching and putting our fingerprints on something that was holy and that was given to us by God. But if we don't translate it, then people won't know what it said and then they can't follow him anymore. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so it, as I said, it was sort of a necessary evil. Um, and they, it, in the earliest translations of the Hebrew Bible, of course, the earliest one that people speak about is called the Septuagint for your listeners who don't know. Right. I know, you know, my friend, but for the, your listeners, the LXX. Who don't know, yeah, the LXX, which <laughs> is the Roman numerals for the number 70. And that's why it's called the Septuagint. And this comes from a tradition in the Jewish understanding. It's, it's the reference to it is in what's called the letter to Aristius, which was also written in the third century BC, um, which is like the two hundreds, couple hundred years before Jesus. And mm-hmm. um, basically they felt the necessity for a translation of the Hebrew Bible because so many Jews were living in Hellenized cultures and were raised speaking uh, Greek. And they didn't, not only did they not speak any Semitic language, or if they did, it was only in in the synagogue, but um, they really, even if they spoke Aramaic or a, a modernized form of a Semitic language, they didn't speak this ancient biblical Hebrew that the text was written in. So they right. didn't, they couldn't read it. And um, so it had to be simultaneously verbally translated for them by the you know officials in the synagogues and things like that. They would read one line in Hebrew and then they would try to translate it. Um, and this was somewhat cumbersome and problematic, but also they wanted people to have access to like a true meaning of it. And they wanted to nail it down because they didn't want people just freely translating whatever they thought. So they, the tradition is that 72 elders of the you know Jewish faith prayed together and then they went into 72 separate rooms and they wrote each wrote down an entire Greek trend. I mean, this is obviously somewhat of a myth, but this is the tradition. Um, Each one in their separate room wrote down a full translation of the Hebrew Bible in Greek. And when they came out, all 72 translations were identical. Um, And that's how they knew that the, that God had given them this translation. Now, obviously we know that's probably not, well, that's not really exactly what happened because, correct, correct. Um, but, but I'm sure they would have defended it just like this nice gentleman defended the KJV just, mm-hmm. you know, cause that's kind of the same mentality is 
you know, this must be perfect because the translators, you know, God made them perfect or whatever. Right, right, right. Um, so the Septuagint, um, you know, sort of by the time of Christ was known as, of course, a lot of the quotes when Jesus quotes the Old Testament, mm -hmm. generally believe that he is actually quoting the Septuagint, believe it or not. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that that debate. Yep. That is debated in some ways. And it could have been, <laughs> you know, yeah. But that's a that's a side you, conversation. Do you think he um? Let me ask you just real quick, and you can just mm -hmm. touch and move on. What about, do you think he would have quoted the Targum or from the Targum? Well, he does quote from the Targum, but not as scripture. Um, okay. And part of, it, he quotes some of the teachings that are, he references, he doesn't quote, he references, you can't quote something that hasn't been written down, really. Um, so the Targums had not been written down yet. They were orally transmitted up until about gotcha. the fourth or fifth century, well, third to fifth century, depending on when you, you want to date that. Um, they were orally transmitted until that time. And the Targums are based on what I just was describing as that live sort of real time, simultaneous translation that went on in a synagogue. Okay. Right. right. But they were a received tradition. So it wasn't actually spontaneous because in order to transmit the Targum orally, you had to be trained by a particular, you know, rabbi in order to do it properly because you get, because the traditions were preserved. Right. Um, and, and it observed certain linguistic standards and things like that. Okay. Okay. The Targums, for your listeners who don't know, are the Aramaic, the Aramaic, old, right. Aramaic translation of the Old Testament as well, mm -hmm. the Hebrew Bible. Um, those somewhat predate or are equivalent to <clears throat> the Septuagint, but because they were not actually written down until the like fourth century ish AD, uh, the manuscripts themselves post date the Septuagint. And that is actually something I'd like to say about translations in general that I think people in our culture don't understand. And that is this, we live in a print culture and it's really hard for us to understand what the world was like and how culture approached religious texts before print culture. Okay. And by print culture, I mean, having a printing press, which of course came along in the 1500s. Um, and, and started to create, before there was a printing press, there was never a concept of what we call standardization, okay? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So for example, even at the language level, there was not standard spellings of words, okay? And the reason there were not standard spellings, people just spelled it however they thought it sounded to them. Um, the reason there were not standard spellings is because no one, there was no standard text that had one spelling of something. Right. Everything was handwritten or spoken or copied. And when things were copied, it was really acceptable socially for them, for there to be textual variants. It wasn't mm -hmm. upsetting to people. Like now you hear people like that guy that we just listened to go on and on about textual variants. And there were this text and this manuscript, and this one is different with this one word. It flips these two words. It spells this word differently, so on and so forth. And they want to argue about that in terms of the veracity of the modern versions that we hold of the Bible. But the problem is that it wasn't until 500 years ago that people thought that there being a variant of a text or a manuscript was bad or scary or somehow made the Bible not seem inerrant. Right. You see what I'm saying? I mean, up until that, it didn't bother people that there were slightly, first of all, they only vary in really slight ways. None of nobody's salvation in Jesus Christ hinges on a textual variant. None of those things are things that I find to be theologically significant PS. Okay. So, um, just having studied most of them. Okay. Yeah. Um, they're not things where you're going to be like, oh my gosh, like this thing that I was, that was foundational to my faith isn't really true. It's not like that. They're very small things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, 
And um, so, you know, for thousands of years, the fact that there were variants to a text or to the content of the text didn't bother people. It just started bothering people when things were printed because then they would say, just like they do now, you don't have the right version because this is the 1572 version and this is the 1608 version. And, you know, that didn't exist before then because things just kept getting copied and handed along and, and told orally. Suddenly you have this concept of standardization and everybody wants to scream and yell about authenticity. And I'm not saying it's not an important argument, but it is a cultural shift that people don't talk about when they talk about translations. So I want to hand this back over to you and see if you have a more focused question about any of this. Yeah, I was just going to, when you were talking about um, the Septuagint translation, because, you know, just looking at, even if you go from, or if you, if you do have that, capacity to read this up if you want to mm -hmm. um and you compare it just take for example genesis chapter three they translate uh elohim um to theoi which is the nominative ma nominative masculine plural which is gods mm -hmm. and so you know somebody reading that was like well, well dang this is uh it's it's in plural form but i think what what now, what I think what I know what Dr. Dr. Uh, Reese is talking about is, you know, when you and especially when you touched on languages jumping, I mean, you got to look at it. Um, if I say there, you know, it's it's going to depend on context because the English word has for there. What, four different spellings for there, if I'm not if I'm correct, three or four different mm -hmm. spellings, you know. Yeah. Um, so. Let me ask you this, is it is it and I guess we get back to the to the I really want to touch on the manuscript. Um, well, first of all, the reason why it says say oi in the in the Septuagint is because the Septuagint is attempting to literally translate uh -huh. meaning woodenly or word for word, not everywhere. Some of the books in the Septuagint are more free in their translation, but a lot of them are are what's called a wooden or a calc style translation where it is kind of go, following the word order of the Hebrew. And that's okay. actually unnatural in Greek, of course, because the word order in Greek is very different. It's oh, yeah. a completely different language than, than Hebrew. But there was this attempt by the translators to be super faithful to, you know, the Hebrew while still translating it into Greek. And in one of the ways they attempted to, to remain faithful was by following the word order and then by using these sort of signifier um, words and just translating the same word the same way every time, even if it had a different sense, not because they thought it meant that every time, but because it's a way of pointing back at the Hebrew text, if you can understand my meaning. So the idea, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. ironically, is that even if a person read that translation, they would have to know something about Hebrew to even really understand it. Um, and maybe that's why they wanted the readers to sort of be pointed back toward the original text, even though they were getting a sense of it in their native language. Um, and so the reason it's translated theoi and why it's plural is because in Hebrew, the word Elohim technically also has a masculine plural ending. Right, um, right. Um, and even though we translate it God in English, it is a, it's a plural word. So and couldn't that apply to any non, you know, not, uh, let me say non-materialistic entity, if you would, did they take Elohim and, you know, like an angel could be Elohim. Um, well, not, what are your thoughts on that? Just real quick. That's a whole other podcast. Oh, uh, never mind. Um, we'll come back to that one. <laughs> um, it's it, it <laughs> well, it depends on it depends on where in the Old Testament you are, first gotcha. of all. Um, it is 
usually not. I mean, there are times when it's used to refer to heavenly beings, but it's pretty rare, actually. Okay, so it's not like the Satan. Anybody could be a the Satan, the accuser. Um, Yes, but even that also depends on where you are. Exactly, because the Old Testament has a lot of different authorship in it, and um, yeah, it, yeah, it spans literally millennia. So you have to be careful, kind of melding it all together and acting like there was a single author to all of it. There was a single inspirer of all of it, but right, <laughs> but right. God, thank God he, he speaks in our, you know, current local colloquial dialects for us because he Amen. knows we can't understand him otherwise. So sometimes a word, just like with the King James version, there are words like ghost that no longer mean what they meant then. So it's not appropriate to keep using those as the translation because it confuses people like my children who are like ghosts or scary things that people look exactly. at at Halloween. Oh, yeah. You know? I mean, in, in instead of the spirit of God. You know? Right, right, right. Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yes. You know, if you old school Pentecostal, you know, they don't, they, they're not giving up that Holy Ghost. They say they, Holy Ghost. Yeah. I mean, that's how I was raised. They're playing with children. that. Yeah. Oh, them new you and I come from that call same. him Holy Spirit. You know, I'm like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> all right so talk to me uh, how important uh manuscripts i mean i think that the issue with and i don't say the issue you know and i guess we can go ahead and just touch on kjv here with their manuscripts how and of course with hebrew by what do they have with that um and then the greek manuscripts that they were using um Talk to me a little bit about that. Hopefully that was clear enough. If not for the King James version, you mean? Right, right. KJV. Um, because I I hear a lot about, well, they didn't have the manuscripts and blah, blah. And they would say, no, they had the original manuscripts, the earliest manuscripts and this, 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 and that. <laughs> okay. Um, talk to me a little bit about that if you can. All right. Before I say this, let me remind you of what I said already. And that's, you know, being, being, I don't normally call myself an expert on anything because the older I get, the more I realize I don't know anything at all. Oh, yeah. When I hear people talking about manuscripts and translation and things like that, first of all, the people talking the loudest usually know the least. So we're going to start there. Um, <laughs> but, um, and then that's true in a lot of, you know, categories. <laughs> lately. Um, but no, but, but in, in seriousness, um, I want to say that we, we have to remember that even the Hebrew Bible that mm-hmm. you would look at, if you, if you say took a class in seminary on Old Testament and you knew Hebrew, you would probably get what's called a BHS, a Biblia Hebraica Stuttgartensia. It's based on the Masoretic text of the Hebrew Bible, which was finalized in sort of the ninth and 10th centuries AD. So that's only a thousand years ago, even though the text itself is three and four and 5,000 years old in terms of its oral transmission and roots and things like that, you know, it contains books across thousands of years. Um, And, you know, you have to remember that that itself was comprised of just hundreds of different manuscripts with hundreds of different copyists, writers, authors, oral transmitters, I mean, even in the Bible text itself, you look at Jeremiah and Baruch, right? He had this guy following him around, writing down what he was saying. You you know, um, you have Moses, you have, um, you know, all of these people that are writing or talking to someone who's transmitting what they're saying, things like the wisdom literature, who's writing that down, how many people is, 
how many people's work does it actually represent the book of Job? Is it really a parable? Did it really happen? You know, these, these types of things and the language that they represent, it's just astronomical, the number of, of things that had to go together to come up to, to come together with that. So before mm-hmm. I say anything, I'll say, we always trust that what God wanted us to know can get to us. Um, you know, if God wanted to do everything the way he did the 10 commandments and talk to us out of the sky so that no human could interfere with his words, he could do that. And he mm-hmm. would have done, that, but he didn't, right. um, he allowed us the privilege as he does today of being part of his ministry, you know, yeah. Yeah. and he allowed people to put their imperfect fingerprints on his, you know, what he was saying. Um, when, when you preach, you're using Trevor's dialect of English, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and, and that I can't look at it and be like, well, this isn't authentic because God doesn't use this dialect. I mean, that's, I'm I'm saying, I feel that the Holy spirit spoke to my friend and he gave him a word to speak to me and he spoke it in his way of talking. And if a person who's a, you know, 85 year old white woman talks to me, she's going to use a different way of speaking English, but I, that doesn't, if the Holy spirit gave her a message, it's going to be the same thing, but the, the grammar and everything is going to be different, you know? Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And we have to, we have to understand the role that faith plays when we receive the Bible. Now the Bible is different than a person just giving you an inspired word from the Holy spirit. Well, I'm going to say that the canonization of the Bible is significant historically, but God is the God of history. And he's the God of, you know, of truth. And so he allowed what, what came to be canonized to be canonized and what didn't to not, and all of those things. The fact that there's now so many translations is challenging for people because they do get scared. Like, well, what if this translator is translating this word in a way that I don't trust? Right. Right. And, um, we also have to trust the Lord there. I've, I've gone places where people were barely literate and they had a deep, relationship with the Lord. And yeah, they mm. probably don't know all of the things about the Bible that you're learning, but right, right. that doesn't affect their relationship with God. So I start with that because it is the most important thing. And that is that we know that the Bible was written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So the only way we can read it is through the lens of the Holy Spirit or else right. we won't know what it actually says. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. And, and he will, he will show us, you know, if, if anyone lacks wisdom, ask God, he gives to all freely, you know, and Amen. without reservation. So he will show us what we need to know. Um, it's still fun to argue about these things though. I'm not going to lie. So, um, in terms of manuscripts, <laughs> so back to business, I'm just kidding. So in terms of manuscripts, the King James version, the reason why I guess people find it, I don't know why people are obsessed with it. I actually think it's just because people love tradition and they think yeah. that, you know, we use this word conservative. It's a very freighted term because we think of it politically, but the word right, conservative right. just means that people that want to conserve tradition and not be, not mm-hmm. throw it out in favor of something new. Um, and I think if you think about the true meaning of the word conservative and the word progressive, those two things, you need to be both. You, there's things that we need to preserve and there's things that we need to progress past. And, um, you know, our, our country's history is a great example of, of those two mm-hmm. things being held in tension constantly. Some oh, things yeah. we want to preserve and some things we really need to just throw out and get, get past. And, um, and 
we don't want to preserve everything. We're not going to be that conservative, you know, right, right. we want to throw everything out. And I think you got to think about the same thing when you think about manuscripts and, and translations and things like that. The King James Version isn't different than any other translation, in my opinion. It's just a translation of the Bible. Mm -hmm. The difference is it's 400 stinking years old, people. Okay, nobody speaks like that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, there's nothing holy about the English that's being used in it. It's just old. And there's definitely nothing holy about the monarchs who sanctioned its usage. Mm -hmm. I mean, in fact, they were pretty unholy, if you want to know what I think. So oh, yeah. here's the deal. You've got William Tyndale. Okay, mm -hmm. who came along uh, in the in the sort of 16th century, and he wanted to translate the Bible into English. And the reason he wanted to do it was the same reason that the Jews wanted to translate the Bible into Greek and Aramaic 2000 years ago. And it's because he said in the he listened to what Luther preached and he said in the Catholic Church the priests are like gatekeepers and they're telling mm. us what the Bible says. But how do we know they're telling us the truth? I mean, this was Martin Luther is the one who first brought this forward. How do we know that you're really, you know, we talk about gatekeeping as a buzzword in our culture. That's absolutely what, what the hierarchy of the Catholic church was doing. And that's what Luther was fighting against. And that's what we as Protestants still ought to be fighting against in our own denominations now, you know, this idea of gatekeeping. And that's what traditional people that are obsessed with conserving tradition are about. They're about gatekeeping. We need to let these old guys from 400 years ago tell us what the scripture said. And I'm like, no, you need to find out what it said for yourself. <laughs> um, and so what he saw was that, so first of all, Jerome came along um, sort of in the fourth century. He was a Catholic priest. He's, he became sainted later, of course. And he, he took some existent Latin translations and he kind of updated them. And then he did some, a lot of the translations himself into Latin, but he translated them into <clears throat> what's called old Latin. Mm -hmm. uh, and then that became the only accepted quote unquote translation of the Catholic church. Of course, the problem is by the time you get to the middle ages, most people are illiterate and they don't know Latin either. <laughs> you know, they're speaking, right, right. whatever. So at this point you had, Greek and Hebrew, and most of the priests uh, in the Middle Ages didn't know those either. They only knew Latin because that's what they were trained to know. And so they were reading the Vulgate by St. Jerome in Latin, and he had used Greek um, and Hebrew to make his translations and then his corrections to other people's translations into Latin. Um, Halil and... bin Shahar. <laughs> so then Tyndale sort of comes along and as a sort of pre-Protestant type reaction to, uh, and this was before the, the, you know, the Anglican church was formed, but mm -hmm. Tyndale sort of came along and said, I, he was very much a free thinker and a rebel. And he sort of said, I think people need to know what the Bible really says. And at right. that time, translating the scriptures was outlawed and you were considered a heretic and you would not so, only be excommunicated, but you would be mm -hmm. burned at the stake as yes, a heretic. They will, they will kill you. That is correct. And um, some of my favorite people in history were burned at the stake. So maybe one day, you know, that's how I'll go. So, mm. <laughs> um, so <clears throat> anyway, he wrote and published the first version of his English translation of the Bible in the early 16th century, but he had to publish it in Germany where, you know, the, the Lutherans would allow him to do it because mm -hmm. in England, it was against the law. 
Henry VIII um, was entitled the defender of the faith, partially because he resisted Tyndale and resisted the Protestant, you know, what was happening um, in the Protestant Reformation because of Luther. Um, he wanted to keep England Catholic. But of course, he changed his mind when the Pope would not allow him to have his marriage to Catherine of Aragon annulled so that he mm -hmm. could marry somebody else. Um, he was a very lascivious man. He had lots of women running around and he was really angry because none of them could give birth to a son for him. So he kept wanting to get, he wasn't allowed to divorce them because the Catholic church didn't allow that. So he wanted the Pope to annul his marriage, which would be to say that it had never been consummated, which of course is kind of challenging when the person's already had children. Um, <laughs> they just weren't male children. Mm -hmm. And um, the Pope just kept sort of deflecting and not doing that, not annulling his marriage. And a year after William Tyndale, ironically, a year after Tyndale was burned at the stake for, uh, I think it was, yeah, I may be getting the years wrong, but right after around the time that he was burned at the stake for producing the English translation of the Bible, uh, Henry VIII decided to found um the Church of England and separate from Rome because he couldn't get that annulment that he wanted. And he made himself the head of the Church of England and then got his marriage annulled and got the girl that he wanted. So, you know, if you want to know how holy and righteous the people who decided um, on founding the Anglican Church were, there you go. So you can make your own decisions on that. Mm. Um, <laughs> ah. Anglicans. I went to an Anglican church when I lived in England. It was a spirit-filled Anglican church. They prayed in tongues, no lie. It was pretty cool. Yeah, because the Anglicans are kind of, of uh, eclectic when it comes but, in. But, but I'm going to say, they still say that the monarch is the head of the church, and I can't can't uh, bow down to that, okay? Yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> you and so, me both. I mean, that's a problem for me. They got some um, dirt it's, under it's, them It's nails. just the same as having a pope, so, you know, I right. don't know. Um, yeah. and, and of course, you know, who can who can dictate scriptures interpretation that, of the day. So, yeah. And it's, and it's just authoritative, little, you know. Yeah. So um, then uh, Miles Coverdale uh, sort of picked up Tyndale's English translation and kind of um, solidified it. And um, it was <clears throat> uh, approved by Henry VIII. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. About four years after. Tyndale was burned at the stake, I think. Um, and uh, he kind of flipped, flipped because he decided to found the church. And then in, in the early 1600s, when um, James, King James became king, he created this authorized version. And it was authorized because he took out a bunch of Protestant footnotes that were in Coverdale and Tyndale's original versions from the 1600s. I didn't know that. I didn't yeah. know he took out footnotes. He did. They were they were Protestant footnotes, but he took okay. them out because he didn't like them because they weren't Anglican. Um, gotcha. And I mean, well, there's there's a lot of debate about what they were and how significant they were. But that's when people talk about these earlier versions from the 1500s versus 1603 versus 1611. Sort of that's that's the way those things got got shifted forward. Um, and then the significance of it being the authorized quote unquote version is just that it was distributed into all the churches in England that were now Church of England instead of Catholic. Mm -hmm. um, and this was part of their separation from Rome, separation from Catholicism. It was very political. It was not very holy and spiritual. I'm, I'm just, I, there's no other way for me to say this. It just wasn't done in a spirit of, you know, trying to do what God wanted. Now, Tyndale himself and Coverdale 
were men who really believed in transmitting the original meaning of a text to the people. Um, but, you know, they weren't the ones who were responsible for this becoming the authorized text. They were just the, the translators. And they used um, some of the manuscripts used by Jerome. They were pr primarily looking at like Origins Hexapla. They were looking at some majuscules and minuscules. They had a lot of, um, of manuscripts in front of them. But like I said, there are hundreds of manuscripts. So they were using primarily like, you know, these codices that are that are considered standardized versions of the text, what we call the Textus Receptus of the New Testament and mm -hmm. the Masoretic text, the Old Testament. Um, and to say that they use the oldest manuscripts is, you know, kind of laughable because obviously oldest, what does that mean? Um, in the middle of the 20th century, uh, and also was the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. And those predate all the texts that these guys were using for the yep. Old Testament by a thousand yep. years. Thousands. A thousand, 1,000 years. Yeah. You know, I, I really got into just real quick. I got into um, here recently over the summer, just kind of reading some Quranic literature, Dead Sea stuff as it pertains yep. to what I'm, you know, going in with dissertation direction. It's fascinating. I mean, they're, I mean, the beliefs are kind of, I would say all over the place, but it gives us good insight into what starts to bleed into the New Testament. Um, but yeah, but anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, no, absolutely. And then, uh, and then, uh, of course, there was also at the the end of the 19th century the discovery of the Cairo Geniza in Egypt, which uh, had a bunch of scrolls, um, which also contains some some biblical manuscripts that also predate. Uh, these, what was considered to be the earliest manuscripts. Mm -hmm. um, and reference also, like biblical reference within letters and responsa and rabbinic um, sort of correspondence that have variants, that that are evidence of textual variants of the Bible. Now, right. that, again, even that doesn't mean that a translation is right or wrong per se, because there are just always going to be manuscript variants. I mean, that's just part of textual transmission. Mm -hmm, um, and mm -hmm. there will always be like interpolations and corrections and omissions and things like that. Um, so, you know, the thing about the King James version using a manuscript or not a manuscript is one issue. The second issue is how good of a translation is it right. regardless of which manuscripts it was using. Those to me are two separate questions. Yeah. Yeah. Because some, you know, one of the um, when I took Greek four, and um, again, you know, Doctor Reese would tell you, I mean, when you're learning these languages and what we would say like the biblical languages would be considered dead languages, you know, it takes years and years and years. Anybody I talk to about Greek professors, people, you know, speak it fluently that understand the ins and outs. Same with Hebrew, it takes them. You don't just learn it within a snap of a finger and put it down. No, you have to practice with this daily daily well so, well i'm yeah, sorry go i was ahead. gonna say well also the other problem is that even if you learn it you're learning from a from a limited lexicon that true, is just very true. part of a written text and all of them don't agree all of them i'm, I'm serious to you yeah. i've got i've got um uh the pop where if you if you know greek bdag um yeah. i've got dr uh william d mounts i've got um dan wallace i've got several right others. and all of them are all going them to give you a different agree. argument for how to yes. translate words and things like that and the reason is because we don't know we are guessing and some of these things there's yep. there's things that we have a stronger argument for but 
again, because there was no linguistic standardization um, until things were printed and we could have an evidence of it. Yeah. Uh, and you know, and, we have to, yeah. Yeah. I was going to say like, when it comes to manuscripts, especially when it comes to the Greek, I mean, you know, and somebody throws out, oh man, the manuscript. And I'm like, okay, is that Alexandrian? Is it secondary? Is it Western? Is it Byzantine? Or is it other? And he's scratching their head. And I was like, you know, what we learned too was, and I, I found this fascinating because it's in uh, uh, Mark, Mark 1, is it 35, where he, uh, 35 in the preceding verses, mm -hmm. the the leper. We talked about this before, you, me, and uh, uh, Jamal. Mm -hmm. And Mark differs because he says Jesus, Jesus became indignant in the English indignant. Um, he was upset. Um, and the question is, well, why is he upset? Why is he upset with the leopard? But uh, I think it's Matthew and Luke do not trans uh, are very different, but it's more uh, witnesses to Jesus not being indignant or he felt compassion. That's what it is. There's more manuscript witnesses for he felt compassion versus the early witnesses. But what things when when it goes into these modern translations today, and this is this is a, I guess a good thing for us, and Dr. Reese can correct me if I'm wrong, is this is where it's good to, I guess we'll come back to this when it comes to picking a Bible out there, we're just not running and grabbing uh, just somebody that authorized Jane Doe Bible, you know, um, looking for Bibles that have been through sort of an academic rigor or scholarly rigor because the evidence just because we have more evidence for excuse me, Western or Alexandrian, it doesn't mean it's correct. At that point, scholars look at the internal evidence. Okay, well, why did Luke and, and Matthew omit that? It could have been, maybe they, they didn't like Jesus being indignant, angry. And so just because you have more stuff on, on side A does not mean it's correct. Yeah, you and know? of course, Mark is the oldest of the gospels. Exactly. And it is the one that scholars would tell you, they feel that the other ones somewhat used it as their backbone and then mm -hmm. you know added the their own perspective and... yeah right. and so um yes you're you're referring to verse 41, 41. first chapter of mark where it says that he looked at the leper who said to him if you choose you can make me clean and it some translations say moved with anger he said mm -hmm. i do mm -hmm. choose and some say moved with pity or compassion um this has to do with <clears throat> linguistic like lexical variants yeah in different yeah, yeah. versions of that and because that is the old the older a text the more problematic it usually is in terms of having words that people are like that can't be the right word right and i think sometimes we say that can't be the right word because we've already developed a theology that it doesn't match and that's an asegetical way to think about translation it's incorrect yeah yeah um, but, but the problem that we have to hold intention against that is how do we know that we really understand the way that particular Greek word was being used because it's 2000 years ago. And, you know, these gospels are written in somewhat of a more common colloquial style. And sometimes, mm -hmm. for example, in English, I mean, there's a million examples of this, but in English, the way we speak when somebody's like, Oh, this is sick. Okay. I mean, <laughs> they might not mean that the thing is sick. They might mean, right, I got it. I got amazing, it. Right? I got a good one. I got a good one. So in, yeah. in, you might hear people say you good and it it depends on context it's like yeah. you good can mean are you okay you good like you know it has different what's oh, going yeah. on it's it's it yeah. has different and that's what dr right. reese is, is telling y'all about and this is why it's you know you just you mentioned um the holy spirit 
which will definitely give you interpretation. I mean, hermeneutics, we, we, we learned this. I mean, the Holy Spirit is not a genie. God is not a genie. He's not going to zap and download you with everything. That's right. The Holy Spirit gives you apprehension. You need to get some comprehension, which means you need to open these, you know, get some good lexicons, get some good commentaries, open it up and weigh the evidence, you know, weigh the evidence, you know. And well, then- and the other problem is I think people, and this, this goes back to your King James version um, sort of questions. And that is, thou there unto thee. yes, well, I think people, <laughs> the language, look, language is how it's so fundamental to humanity. Like even, you know, doctors don't fully understand language acquisition because they don't understand how humans just start talking, you know, Um, and, and why language is so inherent to us and not to animals. And of course we know that God used language to create the world. He didn't, he didn't use his hands. He used words. And, you know, there's an old rabbinic tradition that says that before God created the universe, he had to create the Hebrew language so that he could use it to create the universe. Um, Mm -hmm. And I, I love that. I heard, I heard, I heard one scholar say, uh, what is her name? I, I'll send you her name later. Um, uh, African-American sister, black sister. She was saying uh, Hebrew is the language of the God. Hebrew is the language of the gods. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Said, I mean, sorry, New Testament faculty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, and I always tell people, I'm like, well, we all know that God speaks Hebrew. So, you know, right. Right. Um, but, but you know, it, it, it is, um, I mean, language has creative force and power mm-hmm. and language is, you know, when I was little, my mother used to tell me, she said, I think that God is always creating something. And she's like, that's why, you know, on the earth, sometimes they find flowers or animals that we didn't know existed until right now. Mm. She's like, how do we know he isn't just still creating things like that where we can't see them. And, you know, even though that's sort of this beautiful, like childhood memory that I have, I, what, what we have to remember is language is always changing. We're always recreating things in the way that we speak. And so when you take a language like Koine Greek, that is, that was really more like a spoken language than a written language. I mean, it, it obviously, it has these earmarks of being that, as I said to you, more like this code switch type language that, that had Mm -hmm. that, you know, that kind of religious, um, context, pattern to it. Um, but, but it was a colloquial language. So there, there's going to be ways that they're going to be using some of these terms that we just, we can get an idea, but we can't be hundred percent sure. And we have to, that's where the element of faith comes in instead of nailing ourselves down to one person's interpretation of those, we have to say, I'm going to trust the Lord to have transmitted to me exactly what I need to know right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, as you say, we still can study and think about these things and I love talking about them, but nobody's faith should hinge on them. And nobody should say that like a church is blaspheming if they use or don't use this or that particular Mm -hmm. translation. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I'm sorry. I feel like we're not really talking about the King James. So I want to allow this is because this is good because it's, it's, um, it's actually giving us the audience myself, necessary background understanding translation how do you know how did we come about the kjv um translating manuscripts the importance of manuscripts so um, and what's interesting i'll just tell you this as well the this is one of my favorites as i told you i wrote my dissertation on the translation of the old testament or mm -hmm. the hebrew bible in i wrote it on the tradition of translation in the jewish community specifically um 
But what's interesting is that um, in the Talmud, which is a, you know the rabbinic literature, the primary piece of rabbinic literature surrounding the Mishnah, um, it's there's a tradition that says that, um, and this is where they're sort of um, putting their seal of approval or authority over the Targums, okay? Mm -hmm. It says, Rabbi Yehuda said, whoever interprets a verse or translates a verse literally is a liar. Mm. <laughs> whoever adds something to it is a blasphemer and a reviler. <laughs> mm. Mm. So what he's saying is when you, it's kind of darned if you do, darned if you don't, if you understand my meaning, because he's saying, you know, if, if you translate it word for word, that's a lie because yeah, yeah. once you translate something word for word, it doesn't make sense in the target language anymore. You're not right. actually giving the sense of the meaning. You're just going word for word. But if you add anything to it of your own interpretation, then you're blaspheming and yeah. you're a reviler. And so it traps you. And then the, what people love to quote this particular um, part of the Talmud, but what they don't realize is that what comes next is he says, so what is his students then ask him? So what is the correct translation or mm -hmm. interpretation, depending on how you want to translate that? And he says, Lishan Targum, our, our, I mean, I'm sorry, Targum Didan. He says, well, our translation. Um, and what he means by that is that the Targumim, um, which is the official sort of Aramaic interpretive translation of the Old Testament. And right. he is saying the reason why this is the right translation is because this is the one that, you know, we know that God like handed down to us through our rabbinic fathers. And um, obviously he's sort of taking the same view that people take of the King James today. He's they're saying there's only one correct translation because all the other ones can't be trusted. Right. Right. And I just don't view translation that way. Um, and also again, the language that you're translating it into keeps changing. So you can't hold on to an old translation of it because as I said, if I say to my children, do not take the name of the Lord in vain. They don't really know what taking something in vain means because we don't talk like that. And the word vain mm -hmm. in our culture now means, you know, like the wicked stepmother that looks at herself in the mirror. It doesn't mean anything else. Right. Something um, and they understand the colloquial phrase, like don't, this has all been in vain, but like, it means like for nothing, but that's not actually indicative in modern English. Okay. Yeah. Of the meaning of that commandment in Hebrew. Um, the word used there is also the word used, for example, like in Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanity, all is vanity, right? Mm -hmm. um, but again, vanity in our culture means like arrogance. And that's not the meaning. Even people know that's not the meaning, but it would be better translated as something like emptiness or meaninglessness or mm -hmm. absurdity. Mm -hmm. um, and so to say, um, do not use the Lord's name in an empty manner or in a meaningless context or um in a in a way that is absurd that robs it of meaning is what it what it means that has a lot more depth and helps us to understand more clearly what that commandment means than just say don't take lord because we all grew up with don't take lord's name in vain that means don't say oh my god or the a curse word with the lord's name in front of it or don't say jesus christ as a curse right. you, you know and yeah, I don't think you should do that, but that is using it in an empty manner, but it's more than that. I mean, I thought it just means don't say it as a cuss word, you know, when I was <laughs> Right, same, same, same. Yeah, but it, but it means more than that. It's saying don't just throw God's name around in an empty way. And that can even apply to do not swear, like, like it says in the New Testament, do not swear by the name of God, because you might be doing that in an empty way 
um, just using it like, like a magic word. And we see that a lot in Pentecostal culture, you know, in the name of Jesus, this, this, and this, but throwing it around as if it's a magic spell, like it's going to, you know, that, that also could be using it in a meaningless or empty manner because you're overdoing it. You know, you're, and that, that brings up all these amazing theological implications that are not there. If you are insisting on relying on a translation that is 400 years old and it's using language that doesn't actually translate into our modern mm -hmm. culture. Mm -hmm. That's just a tiny example, but. Yeah. Let me ask you, um, what, in your opinion, in your scholarly opinion, I gotta ask you, because I think the, the number one thing that you hear a lot of is, well, these newer translations are taking verses out. So let me let me play this for you right quick. <laughs> I have the right Bible version. I believe the King James Bible is God's perfect word. And one of the reasons I believe that is because it's not missing any verses. First John 5, 7 is one of the strongest verses supporting the Trinity. The fact that the Godhead is made up of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and that these three are one. But this is also one of the most well-known verses that is missing from the modern Bible version, such as the NIV or the ESV. Verse 5 of 1 John 5 says, Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the spirit that beareth witness because the spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. The King James says in verse seven that the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, these three are one. The modern corrupted Bible versions replace this verse by saying, there are three that testify. Get yourself the pure words of God. Get yourself a King James Bible so you can know. All right, so, you know, you got first John five, seven, it's, it's others. Um, Jesus healing, healing the boy that suffers from epilepsy that's possessed. Uh, this kind KJV, this kind go off, not out, but by prayer and fasting, but fasting, yeah. and, uh, you know, what do you, what do you, how would you, if, if, if I was a KJV is only, and I would say, Oh, you know, Margo, look, they're taking it out. They're changing God's word. How would you how would you walk through? Would you say KJV translation translators added to the text or mistranslated some manuscripts? Thoughts? Okay. Well, first of all, saying Parse that, that however you want to saying that the King James version mm -hmm. and what's included in it is the most authoritative. You're you're only going back four hundred years. <laughs> um. So you're just picking arbitrarily one of them and saying this one is right and all the other ones have left out what was in the King James Version. He's not saying that the other ones left out what was in the Hebrew or mistranslated what was in the original manuscripts. He's saying they just left out what was in his favorite English translation. <laughs> okay. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And because language is so powerful, the language that people learn the scripture in um, maps their theology. It helps, it informs the way they think about God and they get really angry when people change it uh, yes. because it's, it's strange to them when people do that. Okay. Um, and I would say this changing the language of something or finding a, a, a textual variant among the manuscripts that are being mm -hmm. used. It, it doesn't have to be as threatening as people are taking it to be. Okay. Like I said, I, I just, People take it way too seriously. And I want to say this part of the reason is because that, that man was probably raised in a church where a preacher built his entire 
basic theology on a couple of verses that he doesn't understand were translated for him by someone um, in England 400 years ago. They weren't transmitted to Moses or Matthew or John thousands of years ago. <laughs> okay. So the words that that man built his theology on, he picked a couple of English words and said, this is, this is what God said. And mm -hmm, it's a mm -hmm. translation of what God said. Right. But we have right. to be flexible and you can't build your whole theology on, on, it can't all pin be hinging on one pin like that. Um, it has, you have to look at the whole entire text and understand that it's a translation. And right. so my first answer is you can't say that a translation is the original because it isn't right. Okay. I mean, I can't go to someone in Russia and be like, I know what the exact words that Leo Tolstoy wrote in war and peace are, because I've read this authorized translation of the Russian. That person would be like, okay, but I've read it in Russian and you've kind of misunderstood a little bit, but that's okay. You got the basic idea. Right. Well, I can't keep being like, no, my translation is better than what Leo Tolstoy wrote in, Rus in Russian. That doesn't mm -hmm. make sense. It's just stupid. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. I know that's not a nice word, but that it's literally ignorant to say that. You're, right. you're literally saying that some English guy who didn't know a word of Hebrew until he was a grown man produced a better version of the Bible than the original one that was written down that was inspired by the Holy Spirit. It doesn't make sense to say that. Mm -hmm. So that's my primary argument right there. However, his argument also goes back to <clears throat> what manuscripts they were looking at. Correct. Um, the manuscripts that, that we have now, we have hundreds and sometimes thousands in some cases, more manuscripts available to us than were available to people in England in the 1500s. Okay? Correct. Correct. <laughs> um, <clears throat> now, that doesn't mean their translation is wrong, and it doesn't mean that, that it's bad. I'm not saying that the King James Version is bad or wrong necessarily. I'm mm -hmm. just saying to say that it's more authoritative is kind of foolish because they had, let's say, several hundred manuscripts available to them that we now have thousands. When you look at thousands and you see that out of those thousands, there's maybe less than 10 that contain a certain verse, modern translators will say, okay, I know everybody loves this verse because they're used to it from church, from the King James Version, but it doesn't really seem to have been the most original version of this verse or these words or whatever, because we now have, let's say, hundreds of manuscripts and only a couple of them have this particular wording in it. So it's not that big of a deal, but we're going to go with what we think is more authentic. That's why they made that choice in first John. Okay. Because they're looking at a lot more of the Greek manuscripts than were available to Tyndale right. and people like that. And when they look at them, they're like, you know, there's no problem. If you want to say the father, son, and the Holy spirit, you can say that because the people translating it are also Trinitarian, but they're like, <clears throat> you can say that if you want. But we know that there are hundreds of verses, I mean, hundreds of manuscripts of this that actually say the spirit and the water and the blood, these three yep. agree. Yeah, to Numa Kai, to Hodor Kai, to Hamaya. I think it's how you pronounce it. The, there you which, go. which would be the spirit and the water and the blood. Yeah. Yep. And I think, um, <clears throat> you know, uh, the, the primary fault in that, that type of argument that that man was making is actually to feel that there's something deficient in there being a variant of the translation. I just, I, I don't think that it's that big of a deal. Yeah. It's like, I mean, um, 
here's what I heard one time. Um, and again, this goes back to what you what you're talking about. Again, and and I think sort of kind of we we, you know, some folks elevate KJV. Uh, the language is pretty. I'm not gonna lie. That it Liz, is, Liz, yeah. Elizabethan speech. It is pretty language. And one person pointed out, I can remember scripture better in KJV than I can in these newer translations. But he says it doesn't mean that I, I hold KJV only. He just said it just, I mean, from a child, that's all we knew was KJV. Right. That's all they would quote. Well, and what I would say is, you, you know, whoever said that to you um, has a better, that person has a better self-awareness of why they prefer KJV. Right. I think the the genuine underlying reason why people want to say that you should stick with KJV if they say that is because that's the version they were raised reading. And when someone messes with it, particularly if they don't just change the nature of the language, but they change the words, like from this particular verse in First John, mm-hmm. the person gets very, it agitates them because their whole faith hinged on the words that they were taught as a child from, from youth and it, or from salvation, it doesn't have to be childhood, just from the time that they were saved. And, um, if that's the way they were taught, it agitates them when someone changes the wording, they don't like it. Just like, for example, when you're used to saying the Lord's prayer in the traditional way, and then somebody says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And it's annoying Mm -hmm, because you want mm -hmm. them to say trespasses and all that, you know, right, right, right. And debt and trespass are two different words and they mean different things in English. And I don't think that that has to be blasphemous. I just think we have to understand that there are different there are different ways to translate these things. And one of them doesn't always have to be like better or more right than the other. But Mm -hmm. in my opinion, the real reason people have a violent preference for one translation, if they do, is because they are conflating two things that, that don't actually go together. One is the way that they received Christ, which is in the King James version of the scriptures. That's when Christ first spoke to them. It was through that So it irritates them for someone to change it because they feel that the person is changing the words of Christ. Yeah. In fact, they're just changing the translation that the person used to. I think they're confusing that feeling, which we all relate to. They're confusing that with something about theological authenticity or Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. correctness, um, you know, rule, like rule following. And, and those two things are actually two separate theological pieces. One is more your relationship with the Lord and how you feel comfortable. Um, and, and what, what you go back to in your, in your memories of your salvation, um, and, and how you received Christ. And the other has to do with righteousness and, the law and the, it's it's two different it's total to me two totally different things but people confuse them just like they confuse you know being american and being christian not the same thing but a lot of people have a problem conflating those two issues also another podcast but you know um <laughs> but i but i think like one of my favorite things to do a podcast about but not this one um i think um you know, that's part of the problem, but the person can't admit it or can't see what I'm saying. So I'll give you an example. I was speaking to a, a brother of mine recently and a really precious brother. He loves the Lord. He's from Sri Lanka and he moved to America when he was 13 or 14. He speaks Singala, which is a Sri Lankan language, but he also speaks English fluently. When he moved here with his parents, they're Buddhist because they're from Sri Lanka. They moved here during the war. Mm-hmm. He, he went to school and then he went to college. And in college, he met the Lord and became a Christian, gave his heart to the Jesus. And he's an incredible like man of God, just loves the Lord so much. And just really, I just, I love his heart for the Lord. 
but he received Christ in college, probably through something like InterVarsity. And, um, you know, he learned the using the NIV translation of the Bible because nobody had like a Singala Bible at his college, which was American. And he's he speaks English pretty natively. So he didn't need it. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. He said to me recently, I said, do you have a Bible in Singala? I was at his house and I just wanted to see if he had one. And he said, um, you know, I have one, but I don't read it. And I said, well, tell me why not? And he said, well, when I read it, it feels weird to me. I don't like the way I, way it fe- I don't like it. I don't like the translation. And I said, what do you mean? Mm. He said, because in my heart and mind, when I know scripture, I know it in English. And mm. so when I read this, it doesn't seem right. right. And he's like, I know there's nothing wrong with it. It just doesn't jibe with me. I just want to read the English because that's the way that I learned it, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's what I thought. That is a perfect example. There's nothing wrong with the Singala translation. Like he wasn't saying it's translated incorrectly. He was just like, I don't like the way it makes me like it doesn't I don't connect with it. It's kind of what he was saying. I don't feel connected to it in the Holy Spirit the way that I do when I read the NIV. Well, that's not a spiritual discernment issue. It's a personal salvation issue. He learned Christ through the NIV so in English. So that's what he wants to go back to in his heart. Correct. And I think, you know, that's a great example in modern language of what's happening to people when they say they need it to be the KJV or they need it to be even the NIV or the yeah, yeah. or whatever it is. I mean, people will say all kinds of things. It needs to have the Apocrypha. It shouldn't have the Apocrypha. It needs to have this verse and doesn't have this verse. I mean, mm-hmm. and I think people need to be a little more. Well, if they had a better understanding of where all these things came from and also of how we as humans sort of are so dependent on language and language determines so much for us. Yeah. Yeah. Let me ask you real quick. What do you, um, what do you think about the message Bible? (laughs) Well, it's not a translation. First of all, it's more like a, um, an adaptation is the word that I would use. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't like it, but I don't think it's like, the devil. I mean, I just don't like. Right, it. right. You just don't prefer it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I never, I, I, no, no. I don't. It's not just that I don't prefer it. I do not like it. Okay. Um, and the reason I don't like it. <laughs> no, no. I'm going to be stronger. I, the reason I don't like it is this. Not because I, I understand the intent of the people who put it together, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I don't think there's anything wrong with their intent, and I don't think that the thing in and of itself is, is there's anything terrible about it. Right. But the problem comes when people treated as though it were a translation of the Bible or when preachers like to use it as a way of that, they think amplifying an interpretation of a verse, right? Because it is very, very theologically biased by the person who constructed it. And there's nothing wrong with that. I just don't always agree with that person's theological interpretation of verses. And that's okay. I don't think that's a problem either. But it is a problem when people think they're looking at a translation of the Bible, when in fact, they're looking at an adaptation or an interpretation of the Bible. Finally, I think that the message was basically developed and adapted from English translations rather than from the original text. And therefore, it's like twice removed. And that's also a problem. Yeah. All right. Let me. um, Let me let me play one more, because this is a this is a good one. Um, You're killing me with these. No, I said this is, it, and we're gonna we're gonna wrap it up. We're gonna wrap it up, wrap it up, Trev. All right, we're gonna, <laughs> we got one more because this is interesting, and it goes back to Jerome and that Vulgate and mm-hmm. translating Halil bin Shahar. Is that the correct pronunciation? Halil bin Shahar, oh shining one, day star, oh shining one. Oh, yeah. um, you know what I'm talking about? 
Um, yes, yes, Daystar, uh, Day, Son yeah, of Dawn. Yeah, Isaiah yeah. 14, and then... Yes, Son of Dawn, yes. Yep, yep, How yep. You Are Fallen, Daystar, Son of Dawn. Yep. Yeah. All right, so check this one out. The fur is an angel that was cast down from heaven, Satan. Satan. That's Satan. That's the devil. The devil. He's Satan. 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 The devil. The devil. The devil. All right, <laughs> who's Lucifer? The devil. All right, it's an easy question, I know. That's perfect. Satan, yeah. The only way you and I know that Satan's name is Lucifer is because of Isaiah 14, 12. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? Now I want you to notice, it gives us his name and it gives us his title. O Lucifer, son of the morning. So what's the title of, Lu of Lucifer? Son of the morning, right? Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. The King James Version says this. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am, this is Jesus speaking, I am the root and the offspring of David, this is Jesus speaking, and the bright and morning star. Do you see that? What did Jesus call himself? The morning star. That's his title. So both the King James and the NIV in Revelation 22:16 state that Jesus Christ is the morning star. What does the NIV call Lucifer falling down from heaven? How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. So instead of Lucifer being cast out of heaven in Isaiah 14, 12, in the NIV, you have Jesus being cast out of heaven. Now look, the Bible has told us that Lucifer or Satan was cast out of heaven for wanting to be like the Most High. Wanted to be like God. Look, the NIV, after attacking Christ's deity, after attacking his pre-existence, after attacking the fact that he was born of a virgin, that he had no beginning, that he had no ending, that he was God in the flesh, it's now accusing him of wanting to be like the Most High. He is the Most High. According to your NIV, Jesus fell from heaven and not Lucifer. The people who are behind these versions are of Satan. Satan wanted to corrupt the word in the Garden of Eden, and we are not ignorant of his devices. Do you know who Luke All right. That was disturbing. Okay. <laughs> Very disturbing. Very disturbing. Uh, but, that you know, that goes back to uh, um, Jerome translating that in Isaiah 14, as which would be Saturn talking about the planet. Mm -hmm. um and lucifer and then we get carried away which just lose for a light bearer but anyways have at it well what is your i mean what's your question that was a lot of hoopla so i mean again i guess we can let, let's with translations all right and then going back to i guess just with jerome and and what have you um because that, and that this this is a point where Okay, the, the you know, they may the bring out and say, well, oh, man, they trained now saying Jesus, you know. I, I'm, I'm trying to tie this in because I don't want to go too far down that, that rabbit trail as far as identifying Satan in the scripture. But anyways, um, yeah, that's that's your there you go. You got like five podcasts today that you can. Oh, yeah. Out. Yeah. I mean, because I mean, it's, you know, well, okay, well, first of all, even using the word Satan is uh -huh. not being used in that passage in Isaiah. It's because. Not passage has several it has the current historical meaning you know in which he was referring to a political leader of that day it has a prophetic meaning jesus says i saw satan fall like lightning from heaven right so we know that uh -huh. um and that's why people tie it back to that verse okay 
Um, and then these crazy men on this recording, whatever that was, okay, um, who are mad at the NIV because they're such amazing biblical scholars. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they are um, taking issue with things that are too like separated in language, in time. It doesn't, there's not any, they're just, if that's an extrapolated argument, like four times removed. It doesn't make sense. Okay. Right. The words day star done son of dawn mm -hmm. in um, Hebrew that are in Isaiah that they're referring to. Okay. Have, those are some words there. And then the words in, you know, the more, the morning star in um, the, that are written in Greek in the book of revelation, the distance in time between the writing of those two books, and they're in two completely different languages um, is very vast. Okay. <laughs> they are both sort of, I mean, it's arguable about the Isaiah passage. They are both apocalyptic literature, although I don't, I think that that's just straight prophecy in Isaiah. It's not like the book of Daniel or anything. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, so even different genre, for example. Um, and, and then the fact that the English translation of the NIV uses the word like morning star in, in the new Testament and uses son of John in the old Testament. Those are just the English translation of the Hebrew and the Greek. Right. And they're not even the same morning star and, and day star or son of dawn or whatever is not exactly the same thing. It's not identical. They don't use the same words in English. They use different words in English. They could be seen as a parallel, but they're not the same. Okay. So to, to, I, I just, I don't even understand the the argument that they're making because it's so stupid. Um, it, yeah, it just, I mean, you would have to get into the whole, I mean, because even Origen argues that the term Halil should be understood as a proper noun, Lucifer. But it, I mean, you know, with um, Jerome and then Origen, I mean, in later Christianity, this, that Lucifer was just, and I got the planet wrong, it's actually Venus um, that they were identifying. But um, when he translated you know, Lucifer to mean light bearer was, you know, supposedly representative of Venus, the planet Venus. Um, and then you would have to get into ancient Near Eastern beliefs about planets, what gods were associated with those planets, um, what have you. Well, anyway. I mean, yeah, it's like using the word Hades, for example. Yeah, yeah, for like hell or. I Gehenna. mean, my daughter studies, you know, her whole life, she studied like classical literature, Greek and Roman literature. And oh, nice. she first saw a translation, an English translation of the Bible that used the word Hades. She was like, mm -hmm. wait, Hades. She's mm -hmm. like, why would they put that in here, mom? That's, that's like from, that's like from ancient classical, like mythology. Why would they put that in the Bible? She was really angry. And I was like, well, I mean, to her, that was blasphemous to use the word Hades. Cause she was like, Hades, that's not even real. That's like a myth about some <laughs> guy that kidnapped Persephone. And, you know, like she was like, so frustrated by that and I was like well yeah. that's the word that they use to describe that at that time because it was the equivalent she's like well that's inappropriate I mean yeah. And, I was, yeah. and then she's like oh ancient Rome they were so why did they have to do that you know like and she perceived it as a piece of Roman kind of syncretism basically mm -hmm. <laughs> um and and I think you know that's part of the issue here I don't I don't know what those guys they're just crazy I mean you 
you know what, Trevor, you're going to have to like stop listening to some of these crazy things because people that are that silly, like you got to just push them over to one side. Like if they're going to talk like that, they're just going to talk like that, but they don't know what they're saying. And there's no point in arguing them down because they're not actually trying to rely on any kind of real scholarship. They don't know anything about that. And the fact that they're relying on an English translation and arguing about another English translation and you know the NID is not my favorite, but I don't think that it's saying that it's Jesus. No, 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 and it's not. You know, but you, you know, I just I pull up these clips because this is uh, it's it's kind of like this is what it's floating around on like the internet. People run wow. off and believe it, and they'll argue. Like, I mean, I already know better not to. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yes. Um, because I fill my head up with uh, like I tell people that I don't even know who these rap artists are because I'm always constantly reading. You know, or. Yeah occupied doing something but you know i and the reason why i I just play this and then get somebody's opinion or i may walk through it uh is to show you that this is not what this means this is somebody that's just reading the black and white and just see you know the cow that's not even uh i mean yeah that's not even and and pulling out these single verses and then talking about them only in terms of the english is always problematic yep um if, if I don't think that people need, let me, let me clarify. I don't think people need to learn Greek and Hebrew to know what the Bible says and be able to trust it. But I right, do think right. they need to recognize that when yep. they're speaking about an English translation, it's just a translation. And yep. it was made by people who had to make theological and exegetical choices every time they translated a word and they couldn't make it perfect. And they knew they couldn't, they were just trying. And that's why I love that, you know, that, um, quote that I, that I offered you from the Talmud where he says, anyone mm-hmm. who translates literally as a liar, but anyone that adds something to it is a, uh, is a blasphemer. I mean, you know, you're always stuck between those two pieces. That right. that's a beautiful statement about the problem of the, the range of translation that goes from something extremely literal and word for word all the way to um, what's called formal or dynamic equivalence, for example, which is the idea of, you know, giving the, giving the sense, the dynamic sense of the meaning without actually giving a word for word translation. Mm-hmm. Um, you're sort of stuck between those two things in tension and some translations fall far closer to the literal and some fall a lot closer to, you know, just kind of a, a dynamic equivalence. Right. Well, that's the bell. There's the battle. And that's, that's a wrap for us on the day. <laughs> um, but hey, look, Doc, you know, I always appreciate you and uh, thank you for stopping by. Uh, talk to us a little bit about KJV translations a whole lot. So, uh, you know, it, let me ask you any any resources you recommend on this topic? Um, yeah, I mean, actually, if you want to read some really interesting things about Bible versions and the history of the Bible, you can go to, um, there's a place at Cambridge, my alma mater in England, <laughs> um, called Tyndale House. Mm-hmm. And it was founded by Christians at Cambridge who want to study the Bible and in honor of William Tyndale, the first English translator of the Bible. And so it should be like tyndale.cam.act.uk, something okay. like that. Okay. And um, Tyndale is spelled T-Y-N-D-A-L-E. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there, just just click on the articles section. There's some amazing articles. They're written for lay people, um, not scholars. They're really great. And they talk a lot about the oldest 
versions of the Bible, how we got the Bible that we have, what are the oldest manuscripts. You'd really, really like it. It's very scholarly, but it's also written by people of faith. So you Mm -hmm. kind of get the best of both worlds there. I I worked with some people at Tyndale House when I was at Cambridge, and they're really wonderful people, and they know a lot about the Bible. Nice, nice, nice. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, briefly, give me something, uh, Lydia's House, give me something briefly. Oh, thank you, sir. Yeah, so I also um, am the founder of a nonprofit and Christian ministry called Lydia House International. And it's just Lydia, no no apostrophe S. Um, so if you if you are interested to learn more about that, it's just Lydia, L-Y-D-I-A, houseinternational.org. Look us up. We um, have just completed the construction of a home for women and girls in Liberia, West Africa, um, the first country in Africa to have a female head of state and the only country in Africa not to be colonized by white Westerners. So you should definitely check this out. Um, and uh, we are taking in women and their children who have been suffering through ex- uh, victimization, exploitation, and um, human trafficking. And we're giving them a new chance to heal in the Lord and get their education and vocational training and become completely independent. And we're also mentoring them to become leaders and pastors in their communities. So we would love your support. It's an incredible ministry. It's completely led by Liberian leaders, mostly women um, are the, are the leaders of it. And we're working towards full sustainability. Um, and all I do is just give them a shout out and help raise money for them. <laughs> they, they're doing it all themselves there. It's amazing. So thank you. For that. Oh yeah. You're welcome. Man. She, uh, she told me an interesting story too. So a little spiritual warfare things going on, but mm. uh, yeah, maybe, maybe we got to bring you back and talk about that. But, uh, hey, look. Oh yeah. Yeah. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. We should oh, yeah. Go back and have one about that. I know you'd like that. Oh yeah, definitely. Maybe maybe Halloween. Halloween is. <laughs> Think about that around that time. I got to put together. Day. Yeah, yeah, All Saints Day. I got to put together that uh that little mini series. So I like that. You know, if you're open to it, we'll touch base. I will. All I right. Will. Thank you so much, Trevor. Oh, yeah. I always enjoy it. Thank oh, you. Yeah, yeah. Church, we got to close out. I know he's all right. All right, y'all heard that's my bat before y'all. I know God is all right. Yeah, we got <laughs> <laughs> Say so. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. God bless you. Hey, look, thank y'all. Appreciate it. Uh, We got some good stuff coming up your way. Um, Yeah, I got a lot of stuff coming y'all's way. A lot of recording is going to happen. Talking about evidence for the soul. Uh, So that's coming your way. Pipeline. Dr. Stephen J. Miller or Dr. J. Steve Stephen Miller. Uh, Dr. Brian Huffling is coming on. We're going to do some stuff with him. Uh, but yeah, look out, look out for this episode. Well, this episode, definitely please share this episode. Um, check out Lydia house international, check that out. Uh, also check out Tyndale, uh, and, and there's other plenty of resources on, um, how we got our Bible today from Hebrew Bible, Old Testament to New Testament. Even if you want to be a nerd a little bit and want to get into, uh, of the Apocrypha, Deuterocanonical books, all sorts of information on there. So, uh, Oh, and I forgot one other resource. Um, yeah, go ahead. It's it's written for lay people. It's not 100% perfect. There's some problems with it, but it's really great for, for lay people. It's a book called Wide as the Waters. Um, and it's okay. written by a man named Benson Bobrick. And it's the history of the English Bible, the King James Version of the Bible. If you really want to do a deep dive, it will tell you everything you ever wanted to know. You particularly, Trevor, would love this book. It's fascinating. Okay. I might have get that one. All right, cool, cool. Wide is the Waters by Benson Bobrick. It's a great book. Got it, got it. 
All right, well, listen, appreciate you. Thank you for all your downloads. Um, we, we got our foot on the gas pedal. We're going, we're going 100 miles an hour, 500 plus with this podcast. So listen, God bless you. God keep you. And may heaven smile upon you. We'll catch you on the next episode. Peace.